to another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zach Schmall. The Five Things I Read This Week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. This podcast is hosted there. You can also find the podcast in the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch if you're interested and never want to miss another episode. So this week, some of the stories I'm going to share with you are from the beginning of this week. So today is Saturday, May 12th. A lot of the stories I chose were actually published after I did my podcast last week, but early in this uh, in this time frame. So I apologize if it seems a little bit um, dated or not quite as current, but these are topics I wanted to talk about, but I couldn't address on the previous podcast given the timing. So the first one I got for you was published on May 3rd from Intellectual Takeout by Walter Williams. Here's how few Republicans are on college faculties. So this issue has kind of been spurred on because of Rhonda Gerard, who I read about on my website and how she was celebrating the death of Barbara Bush and how it it had people thinking about, yeah, how are the political views on campus? So, there's a study done by Brooklyn College professor Mitchell Langbert. Langbert examined the political affiliation of PhD holding faculty members at 51 of the top 66, or 51 of the 66 top-ranked liberal arts colleges, according to the U.S. News and World Report. He found that 39% of the colleges in his sample are Republican-free, with zero registered Republicans on faculty. As for Republicans within academic departments, 78% of those departments have no Republican members, or so few as to make no difference. So it's fascinating, this article goes on to talk about a lot of uh, other stats. For example, at Williams College up here in New England, the Democrat to Republican ratio is 132 to 1. As you might expect, there's rough equality at the military academies. At West Point, it's 1.3 to 1. At Navy, it's 2.3 to 1. And now this obviously is not to say that a professor who is a Democrat or who is a Republican is absolutely going to brainwash all their students. Obviously, we all have deeply held views, and yet that doesn't prevent any of us from being a good teacher. But when you have numbers of such um, magnitude, I mean, at Williams, 132 to 1, that's pretty crazy. And you have to wonder then, are students actually being exposed 
to actual diversity of ideas if they are if they never hear a conservative voice in higher education that's slightly scary because I mean let's think about it this way right let's just for the sake of argument say that there are some pretty convincing arguments as to why you should be politically conservative and there are some pretty good arguments as to why you should be liberal but let's just say it's it's similar now I, I do tend to fall more conservative although I do have some liberal sympathies um, but overall I tend to lean more conservative however what if you never heard an intelligent conservative ever speak which is actually becoming a lot less likely that you never hear one given the prevalence of podcasts like Ben Shapiro and people like that but let's just say you all you ever hear and let's even say they're good arguments as to why you should be liberal I mean no wonder a lot of young people are going to move in that direction. Now, the problem is if they never hear the good arguments as to why conservatism is the way to go, I mean, you can see where the imbalance lies, and maybe one side is better than the other. I mean, like I said, I tend to land conservative. That being said, if if I never heard those arguments, I probably wouldn't. If I never heard the reasons and the rationale presented by people I actually respect, like faculty members, although I went to the University of Vermont, there's they didn't mention the Democrat to Republican ratio there. I can't imagine it's very much of anything. Um, but it makes you, it makes you kind of wonder, you know, what do, what do conservatives do? And that's why I kind of want to, uh, start this off because, you know, I think for so long, it's not that there aren't good conservative arguments and it's not that there are not smart conservatives because... There certainly are plenty of each, but for whatever reason, you don't see conservatives getting jobs in higher education. Now, you can have bias all day, and I mean that might yeah, that might happen. Like Langbert, he says in his study, I could not find a single Republican with an exclusive appointment to fields like gender studies. Afrikaner studies and peace studies. Maybe I'm off base here, but how many Republicans actually intend to major in such things? So no wonder they don't become PhD holders in such fields. I think you would see more certain fields gravitate towards certain people. For example, if you went to 
a Christian college theology department, you might find more conservatives. Of course, it depends on the college. But what I'm saying, people tend to get attracted to certain types of institutions based on their ideological leanings. So at this point, because of this liberal, like, huge majority, no wonder it simply keeps reinforcing its own bias. And so I wonder where this started. Because that's what would have happened. When did conservatives fade out of having the conversations in these fields? For example, they talk about economics departments in these colleges that have 5.5 Democrats for every Republican. So why, why at that point? You know, economics, I mean, that's a hotly debated field for all sides of the political spectrum. So why did Republican PhDs stop pursuing careers in academia? Did they just all go to think tanks? Do they work on Wall Street? I mean, where, where are they and why aren't they in academia? You could say bias, but why did it start? That's the question I have, and I don't know that I have the answer for you right now, but it's something to think about, and it's something, as we proceed, that maybe we should consider, okay, if we want to, you know, if, if these ratios are a problem, which I think they are, it seems like a, a vast majority in one direction, which doesn't seem to provide the diversity of ideas that I would hope a student would be exposed to on the college campus. If, if this situation is ideal and we want to make it better, well, maybe, quite simply, conservatives have to start doing high-quality work and start working in academia. And there are plenty who do. There's a lot of really good conservative scholars out there, but obviously we need more. And when that work, and there are numbers that really um, show the quality of that work, and it can't be denied or hidden anymore, then, you know, maybe we just shouldn't. But you have to start somewhere. And I think by breaking into this, um, the only way, really, to break into this bubble is to focus our efforts and not just be, ah, well, you know, academia left us. Well, we can't get in there. I mean, maybe some, maybe we can't. I mean, but we have to try and we have to do that high quality work. And when we do that, we can't just run to the private sector. If we really care about colleges, then we have to be willing to do what it takes to get in. So this is an interesting article to start us off. Here's how few Republicans are on college faculties, written by Walter Williams, from Intellectual Takeout. Now, moving into an extraordinarily sad story. Um, and this is just one take on it. From Public Discourse, written on May 3rd, King Solomon, the False Mother, and Alfie Evans. It was written on Public Discourse by Devorah Goldman. So, King Solomon and the False Mother, I think 
you've heard the story in the Bible. There were two women who came before King Solomon, the wisest of all kings. And they both had babies right around the same time, and one died. Um, and so there was one baby left, and each said it was hers. And Solomon then, in what seems to be incredibly morbid, ordered his servants to fetch a sword and to divide the living child in two. And one of the women pleaded, just give it to the other woman. Like, don't, don't do that, just let him live. And the other woman said, well, okay, that's fine. So Solomon obviously knew. Okay, well, the one who said, let the child live, then it must be hers. So he, he gave it to her. And so, this is in First Kings, and that was obviously a, a paraphrase for me. But, the, the false mother, and this is a quote from the article, the false mother in Solomon's court did not appear to care whether the child in question lived or died. Her motivations may seem alien. Did she simply wish to see another mother suffer as she had? Or was she solely focused on winning and being proven right? And then, a little bit further down, the true mother is far easier to relate to. One would assume that no decent person would wish to see a child killed simply to satisfy a dispute. At the very least, only one woman can be said to have the best interests of the child at heart. Now, I don't know if you've heard about Alfie Evans. You probably have, because everyone has. The young child, 23 months old, in Great Britain, who died after his ventilator was removed. He was admitted to the hospital. He received treatment for some undiagnosed disorder until medical staff determined it was in his, quote, best interests to withdraw medical care. Now his parents tried to fight and there were protests all over. Um, air ambulances from Germany and Italy came to the UK and to try to take the child, like, as, you know, a way to bring the child to hospitals elsewhere. Pope Francis asked and advocated for the child to be released from the hospital. And Italy went so far as to grant citizenship to Alfie in hopes it would allow for an immediate transfer. And Alfie lived on for a long time, um, compared to what they expected. So this went on for a while. And, you know, the, the parents wanted to do this, obviously, to get this treatment, and they couldn't get their child out of the hospital because the, the British government, for whatever reason, um, decided that they couldn't, um, yeah, they couldn't 
let him go. And the, the sad part about this whole thing, I mean, obviously there's an incredible overstep by the state. The parents should have the right to do whatever they want for their child and for their child's treatment. That goes without saying, give me a break. Um, and the the question becomes more importantly and I, I think parental rights are incredibly important so I don't mean to minimize that but here's the quote from the hospital the views of the parents will be very important in reaching a decision on best interests but they do not give the parent an absolute right Decisions relating to medical treatment in children have been taken on this basis for many years. In Alfie's case, his parents tried to challenge that approach in their appeal from the decision of Mr. Justice Hayden. Now, this relates to the story of Solomon. You can kind of see how it happens. For the state, it's not their child. They don't care. They're the false mother. His real parents are saying, let us do whatever we can to save this life. And the, the hard part about all of this is there is literally a human life in the balance. And that's the hardest part for me, at least to comprehend. The state somehow failed to recognize and basically made the determination that, you know, it's in your best interest to die. For those of you out there who believe in physician-assisted suicide and deny that there's a slippery slope when we allow people to die, look at this. I mean, there is clearly a state-mandated duty to die. This child had a neuromuscular disease of some sort that was even undiagnosed, they didn't know. And they had options to get treatment. And maybe the treatment would have failed. I mean, that can happen. Nobody's saying that Alfie would have survived. But when you, I mean, you read more about what the judge wrote. And, you know, he, he, uh, I mean, it's incredibly cold. Evan's case is not entirely easy to state. His core dilemma from which he struggles to escape is that whilst he recognizes and understands fully that the weight of the evidence spells out the futility of Alfie's situation, he is, as a father, unable to relinquish hope, and he shouldn't have to. Bottom line. Again, I said it's about parental rights, and that's true. It's also about a life. The state, as a false mother, doesn't mind killing the child in the name of, in this case, 
probably future economic concerns. After all, this is just a calculation. The child has a very small probability of survival. Therefore, what should we do? Well, we should let them die because he's going to die anyway. That is ridiculous. So if you want the state in your end-of-life decisions, think about Alfie Evans. They frankly don't care about you. They'll tell you otherwise. People will probably listen to this podcast and say, you know what? You're crazy. You just are skeptical. Yeah, of course my government will care about me. You know, there's a lot of things that go into these decisions. When we start giving state power like this to terminate lives, even when there are other options that the family was willing to go to to make this happen, this is a terrifying place to be in. So this article is from Public Discourse, written by Devorah Goldman, King Solomon, on May 3rd. King Solomon, the false mother, and Alfie Evans. Now, moving on to much more encouraging news, um, well, at least for one article. From USA Today, on May 4th, Iowa bans nearly all abortions as governor signs fetal heartbeat law, written by Brianne Fennensteel and William Petrosky. So you've heard about this, and you've probably heard a lot of people unhappy about this. Probably heard a lot of people really happy about this. So bottom line, Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds showed amazing courage and prohibited nearly all abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected, making it the most restrictive abortion ban in the United States. Reynolds said, quote, I believe that all innocent life is precious and sacred, and as governor I pledge to do everything in my power to protect it. That is what I am doing today. It passed in the House and the Senate. It goes into effect July 1st, unless the courts stop it. Every time a woman wants an abortion, physicians have to conduct an ultrasound. If they detect a heartbeat, they cannot do it. A heartbeat can be detected about six weeks into pregnancy, so it may even be before a woman realizes she's pregnant. Naturally, Planned Parenthood is upset about this. And, I mean, this is, this is a wonderful thing, first of all. I mean, this is great news. I've spoken about abortion many times. You know my views. If you've ever read my website, you'll remember I'm highly pro-life. You'll remember um, how much I care about um, preventing this evil from taking place. Now, we all know this is going to be challenged in court. I mean, that's not rocket science. We also all know that the Supreme Court hasn't really taken up something like Roe versus Wade in a long time. Um, however, we also know that the man in the White House right now put someone else on the Supreme Court who is certainly pro-life, and he's been appointing uh, more judges, you know, and 
who would tend to be more conservative around the country. So this bill is probably going to get stopped. I have a feeling there'll be a hard order, and I have a feeling it's going to get appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, I'm not, I'm certainly not the most uh, savvy Supreme Court watcher. I'm not, you know, an expert. I don't sit here watching the Supreme Court all the time, but this really, uh, I mean, it seems to be the type of bill that everyone's going to want to push. And you can, I don't know this, but I have a feeling a large reason it was passed right now is let's make them fight it. Let's do it in Iowa, where I imagine, in the end, I'm speculating, so call me out if I'm wrong. I'm imagining the judges tend to lean more conservative. On the appeals court, tend to lean more conservative. Odds are they keep ruling in favor of the law. It's appealed to the Supreme Court. Now you've brought Planned Parenthood exactly where they don't want to go, onto a Supreme Court, where you have at least four pro-life votes, plus maybe Anthony Kennedy. You have abortion rights on the table at the Supreme Court. I mean, that's what pro-life people want. We've wanted it for years. Um, you know, you want to get it up to that level so that it can challenge Roe versus Wade. And it seemed like the right time and the right place to perhaps um, you know, put a law in place that will cause Planned Parenthood to come out and have to fight it all the way up and other pro-choice organizations. You can see, I mean, how this all how this all works out. I mean, it's about Iowa, and I'm very happy for Iowa. It's also about Roe versus Wade. And this will have a much larger impact, I think, than just on Iowa. I mean, it's going to get up to the Supreme Court level, and we'll see. I mean, I, again, it could probably, but again, it, I think both sides are primed. And even if they run into a more liberal judge somewhere in the appeal process, who rules out the laws unconstitutional, I think there's a lot of momentum on the pro-life side to uh, to keep this appeal process going up and up and up. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you can easily see. Um, you know, you you can see this kind of, I mean, the script is set, and it's largely, uh, it's not surprising, let me say, that we see something like this passing, and then, yeah, I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but you see the, uh, Well, the table's set, and we're ready to go. So in the meantime, let's celebrate for Iowa. This is wonderful news, but let's keep our eyes on it, because I think a lot's going to happen here. This was written on May 4th in USA Today by Brianne Fannin-Steele. 
and William Petrosky. Iowa bans nearly all abortions as Governor signs fetal heartbeat law. Now, you may have also heard that May 5th, so last Saturday, was Karl Marx's 200th birthday. So I have an editorial for you from, well, an opinion column, I guess, from USA Today. Don't celebrate Karl Marx. His communism has a death, death count in the millions. Written by James Bovard. I mean, Marxism, people, it's, it's a buzzword. We like socialism, we like communism, we like Marxism. Uh, you hear young people talk about it all the time. It, you know, it's not, um, it, it's a popular buzzword nowadays for a lot of people. And, you know, this article by Bovard really, um, Quote, but Marxism in practice didn't work out so well. I mean, this regime's produced the greatest ideological carnage in human history, killing more than 100 million people in the last century. While some apologists claim it's unfair to blame, unfair to Marx to blame him, the seeds of tyranny were there from the start. And he points out something really important about Marx. That Marxists assumed that vastly increasing government power was the key to liberating humanity. Glorifying command and control was the flip side of demonizing prices and profits. But all powerful regimes quickly became ends in themselves. And it goes down a little bit later that the, uh, let's find it here. This whole idea that Marxism is going to create this utopia, and if we just put our trust in the state, give the state power, and the state will make everyone equal and happy, imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger or brotherhood of man, give me a break. Because you know what happens when you give people power? It corrupts them. That's the beauty of our governmental system, our division of power and the separation of power into branches of government. We, you know, you have this idea, and Marxism is a fundamentally secular ideology. Marx was not at all religious, obviously. So he thought, okay, I'll just put my hope in humanity and all your great people will hunt together. See, that's a fundamentally flawed view of human nature. And it's also a fundamentally flawed view of how people actually act. We, I mean, it, it's mentioned in this article by Bovard how Stalin decreed the death penalty if you stole state property. So meanwhile, people are starving in Ukraine, and children who are still eight years of corn could be shot. I mean, you look at the way that socialism has worked in Venezuela, it's not so hot. You 
I mean, Soviet Union is obvious. You hit China. Here's some major human rights violations. Not quite the beautiful utopia that everyone you know, wants to believe that, oh, you know, if we, if we just embrace socialism, the world will be awesome. We'll all be like Sweden. Yeah, no. It hasn't played out that way. It just, it hasn't worked. And largely, a Marxist ideology is highly dangerous. The, the question, and I spent this last semester, I spent a good deal of time reading Karl Marx. I read Adam Smith, then I read Karl Marx, then I read Karl Menger to get kind of my capitalist, communist, libertarian um, framework established. And, you know, when you have, when you read Marx, I mean, there's really no, uh, so what? So the proletariat's going to overthrow the bourgeoisie. Fabulous. Okay. That's going to happen. Now, what comes next? What do we do? I don't know what we do. And you can see a perpetual cycle of conflict with no real answers. That's pretty much what Marxism provides. Look, we're going to build this utopia. How are we going to do it? We're going to overthrow the bourgeoisie. Okay, we're going to do that. Now the proletariat's in charge. Um, now what? Well, we probably have a new bourgeoisie, so we better overthrow them. Okay, now what do we do? Well, I mean, it's an endless cycle of conflict. And so what you find then is people like the Soviet Union, like Stalin. They get to the top and they want to hold on. Stalin became the ultimate bourgeoisie. He's the upper class. Why didn't the people rise and overthrow him? Because they were shot. Millions were killed. I mean, so, you give all that power to the state, don't be surprised when the state comes around and simply stomps you. This was an, an opinion column in the USA Today, written by James Bovard on May 5th. Don't celebrate Karl Marx. His communism has a death count in the millions. Finally, uh, a funnier article for you. It's from the stream. How to destroy Western civilization without spilling your latte. It was co-authored by Tom Gilson and John Zemirak. Way back on April 18th. So again, I'm sorry. I know these articles aren't quite like right up to today. But what are you going to do? So, I mean, it, it's funny. I'm not going to read the whole article to you. But... He's talking, these guys are writing about how, you know, there's a, a West, and in the West, the, uh, you know, it, it's fashionable now to say, okay, I'm sick of Western civilization. Western civilization is evil, and I really need to make sure that it, uh, that it doesn't happen. I need to... Yeah, a free, diverse, global civilization. And 
So, you know, we want the best of, um, you know, every culture on Earth. And so, you know, we have all this great stuff that we love, but we, on the flip side, shun the stuff we don't like. Like, here's a funny part for you. This new post-Western world you associate with cities like Portland, Oregon, where you can afford to live, but you know from out in Portlandia that the place is really cool. You wish that Indianapolis or Buffalo, where you're still living, were just as cool. But there are things about the West you obviously value, like modern medicine, political order, personal freedom, electronic devices, and openness to change. But you're pretty sure those things would stick around, even after all the bad parts of Western civilization got taken away. You know, just the way all those foreign cultures will shed their native aspects, but keep all the fun exotic stuff once they've settled into Portland, found a nice apartment, made some friends, maybe joined an organic co-op. And, I mean, it's funny, but the whole point is well taken. It's, okay, there's a lot of people out there who say Western civilization is just about the worst thing that happened ever. And what they don't realize is that they've benefited extremely from living in the West. There's all kinds of great things that you and I benefit from every day from living in the West. And, you know, now, it's kind of like you're sitting on the end of a branch and you're sawing off the branch. You're kind of, uh, you're chopping off what you, you know, what would support you and now you're going to fall. Okay, so we love this Western idea of free speech. Yeah, it's a great idea. So, but I don't like that I, yeah, I really like this, uh, this culture that, um, maybe it doesn't embrace free speech so much. So I'm going to say, okay, well, let's reject the West and let's, uh, let's take on this alternate culture. Well, oh, but don't worry, you know, we'll just, we'll take that other culture, but not take the stuff we don't like. In fact, the stuff we really do like about the West but it's unfashionable to say. For example, let's talk about, well, let's talk about Islam, for example. Um, and you take like Saudi Arabia, where women have very, very, very strong restrictions on what they can do. And I understand it's opening up more, which is great. So let's celebrate their culture and let's bring it here. And we'll all assimilate and we'll all get along together. And, you know, their worldview is just as valid as mine. But, you know, that stuff about, like, not letting women drive for a long time. Although I understand, I believe that's broadening. Which, again, is a very good thing. And, you know, for for that kind of uh, thing, alright. You know, um... Yeah, well, they, they can't really have that. But we like the culture a lot. And, you know, it's diverse, so we should definitely let them do what they want. But, you know, once they get here to our open-minded utopia, well, yeah, they'll see it our way. 
And so, yeah, let's just um, celebrate, embrace their culture. We'll reject Western civilization, but really, we want to have the benefits of Western civilization that has been, quite literally, the best civilization for women's rights in most of history. I know there are some um, ancient societies that were very strong on women's rights. Um, off the top of my head, I'm blanking on their names, so I won't say that the West is the best ever, because I'm sure someone will find a counterexample, and there are plenty of ways that the West is not um, great for women, obviously. We have a major objectification problem, for one thing. Um, we have other ways um, that we still have to improve, clearly. I'm not saying the West is perfect, but I am saying, you know, realize how much better we have it than some of these other cultures that we might want to uh, clarify and say, oh, these are wonderful, you know, we had to reject the West, so let's go find something else. Ah, this is pretty cool over here. All right, so we'll take parts of you and parts of you and parts of you. And then we'll all hunt together. And we've all rejected the West, so that's cool. So we can all be friends. It, it just, it doesn't work out like that. And so, then Gilson and Smirak go on to talk about how, I mean, the West survived, basically, because of Christianity. Um, that's not... That's pretty easy history to find. And, but we, we don't like that now. Um, we don't like Christianity either, so we have to reject that. So now we need some other kind of morality. Like I just said, you know, we don't, we don't like the ideas of the West, so we're going to find something different. Um, and, you know, beyond that, you know, let's, uh, reject the family as the baseline for society because there's no reason to get married. I mean, who does that? That's a religious ritual anyway. And, you know, we don't, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so you kind of have to see how this whole thing, like, trickles down. We want to reject the West, and largely we see that we Western civilization is apparently a horrible thing. But the, and, you know, Christianity apparently, for some people, is a horrible thing. But the question, if, if you're sitting on a branch and there are things about it that you like, if you saw off that branch, you're going to fall. You're going to get a very rude awakening when you hit the bottom. And why? Well, quite simply, because you, you can't just have bits and pieces of the West. It, a lot of the ideas are interdependent and they rely on each other. For example, I, I mentioned Islam before and the treatment of women in Islam. Do you think the West would have developed the same way if it had been not a Christian nation but an Islamic nation? Certainly not. And how do we know that? The West is a lot different than the Middle East right now. 
it's that simple, really. You can see the evidence play out. You see what happened, for example, for women here, and what happened for women there. I'm not saying it's perfect here, but I think it is better. I'm open to being challenged on that, but I think um, if you consider, and there are other areas too, I mean, and it, it may not always be so obvious, but you think about if, you know, why do different cultures do that differently? They come in different worldviews. There are different ideas that stimulate development in certain ways. If you have a worldview that teaches you that, for example, all life is valuable, to go back to the abortion issue, then is it any surprise that you see the, a debate about pro-life issues in a country where a lot of people hold pro-life views? I mean, that's not surprising. Obviously, we talk about that. Why do we talk about that? Because it's something that naturally comes out of our worldview of valuing all human life. So at the end of the day, I mean, when we think about Western civilization and, you know, we think about some people are really, uh, ah, I don't like Western civilization. It needs to be rejected. Two big questions. Number one, be prepared to reject the parts of it you like. If you say all of Western civilization is bad, think about the parts you like. And number two, what are you going to replace it with? There are plenty of worldviews out there. Go find one, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to like the implications of what embracing alternative worldviews can certainly mean for other people. So this article was on stream. It was written on April 18th by Tom Gilson and John Zemirak. How to destroy Western civilization without spilling your latte. And thanks guys for having me along for another episode of the 5 Things I Read This Week podcast. I hope you have an excellent week, and we will talk again. See you later.